Well, as a teacher, I have to say probably one of the most difficult things that I do is to uh, give assessments back to the students, particularly if it's not a good grade. Students love you when you give them back and they're getting a good assessment. They feel happy, they feel positive. But if you've got to give back something that tells them that they are not up to par, you're not very popular. I, I guess really none of us like being told that we are not making the standard, that we even have failed. And I think it's similar in terms of God's assessment of the human race. As we come out of chapters 1 and 2, and as Peter mentioned, Hugh and Ree uh, brought most thought-provoking and challenging messages with fresh revelation from God. It was, it was inspiring, and I was able to listen to these um, on the podcast because I was out in kids' church during these sessions, but God really spoke to my spirit as I listened to them. And we were reminded over and over again that it doesn't really matter what your age or stage in life, it doesn't matter who you are or where you come from, if you belong to the human race, you belong to a guilty class. The problem is, like my students who don't like getting a bad assessment or a, a, you know, telling them they're not making the standard, people don't like this. They don't want to hear this. They don't want to accept this assessment that God gives concerning the human race. Many people prefer to rely on self-assessment as to their condition. Now, the reason why self-assessment is not reliable is because we generally base our assessment on whether we are good or not by comparing ourselves to other people. We look at other people around us and see people who are worse than us, do terrible things maybe compared to us and feel when we see that we feel pretty good about ourselves. We play that comparison game all the time and we make our determination of who is good or who is bad based on a horizontal assessment, comparing ourselves to other humans. We look at other people and we say, I would never do that. I would never say what she said. And on that basis, we then determine who is good or not. But the truth is, the Bible is not about good and bad people. The Bible says we're all bad people, except one, Jesus. And Jesus came to save all bad people. That's what the Bible is about. So to be able to accept this, we have to stop using the horizontal comparison. When we look at others around us and compare ourselves to somebody worse, in order to make ourselves feel better and actually to justify our behaviour. The problem with using the horizontal assessment as our means of determining if we're good or not is that we're not using the right standard. Each other is not the standard. Talking about comparison, I heard a story about two brothers, Bob and Bubba, obviously American, and um, they, were, they lived in a small town in the middle of America and uh, their reputation went far and wide. They were um, liars, cheats, drunkards, womanizers. They had spoke with foul language. Everyone knew about Bob and Bubba in their region. Then one day, uh, Bubba died and... Uh, 
of course, no pastor within 100 kilometres was willing to do his funeral. They knew what he was like. So finally, Bob wanted someone to do the funeral, so he offered $5,000 to any pastor who would come and do the service. There was only one condition that was attached. And the condition was that the pastor had to say somewhere in the eulogy that uh, Baba was a saint of God. Now, of course, no pastor was willing to lie, so no one was willing to take up this offer. But a pastor from a little further away, maybe he didn't really know the reputation of these brothers, agreed to it. And so finally the day of the funeral arrived and everyone gathered. People from the town were interested because of this offer that had been made and they were in the funeral service and the preacher started. He said, we all know Baba who was lying in this casket here today. He was a cheat. He was a liar. He was dishonest. He was a womanizer and a drunkard. But compared to his brother, he was a saint of God. <laughs> now we may laugh, but the truth is that is what we tend to do. We tend to get fixed on the horizontal. But what we need to do is to be fixed on the vertical. Instead of looking at the horizontal and by comparison finding someone worse than us so that we can feel better about ourselves and our behaviour, we need to compare ourselves vertically to the standard of God. The standard is up and God is the perfect standard. So it follows then, if we start comparing ourselves to the perfect standard of God, we realise we all fall short. And Paul makes this argument in Romans 3.23. He says, you have to understand, we all fall short. We're all sinners. Now, why is this important? Well, if we don't see our sinful condition, then we will never see our need for a saviour. It's like this. Imagine you received a negative diagnosis from a doctor. You were told terrible news. You find out that the illness you have is terminal. But the doctor then goes on to tell you that while this is terminal, there is a medicine you can take. And if you take the medicine, you will be completely cured. All you need to do is take the medicine. What would you do? Well, I think I'd take it. But I think the truth is that I would only take it if I agreed with the diagnosis. I'll never take the medicine if I don't agree that the diagnosis is true. If I don't see the gravity of the situation, then I would not see the need for a remedy. So Paul, to build his case, explains the diagnosis that God has given concerning the human condition so that we can see our need for and go after a saviour. His willingness to give his life by dying on the cross. We've talked about this this morning. We've sung about this this morning. What he has done has provided us with a remedy for the diagnosis given concerning our sinful condition. But we're not going to accept the diagnosis we're not going to accept the remedy if we do not believe the diagnosis. Now, as we continue in chapter 3, and thank you, Aaron, for recording that and reading it, 
We read that the Jews had quite some objections to the diagnosis that Paul had presented thus far. And Paul addresses these um, objections and concludes with telling the Jews much to their dislike. And I'm just going to read this part from the message. Basically, all of us, whether insiders or outsiders, start out in identical conditions, which is to say that we all start out as sinners. Scripture leaves no doubt about it. There's nobody living right, not even one. So we can't say he's worse or she's worse and I'm better. Not even one. Nobody who knows the score. Nobody alert for God. They've all taken the wrong turn. They've all wandered down blind alleys. No one's living right. I can't find a single one. It puts us all on the same playing field, the same level. This makes it clear, doesn't it, that whatever is written in the scriptures is not what God says about others, but to us. He's talking to the Jews, to whom these scriptures were addressed in the first place. And it's clear enough, isn't it, that we're sinners, every one of us, in the same sinking boat with everybody else. Our involvement with God's revelation doesn't put us right with God. What it does is force us to face our complicity in everyone else's sin. So after two and a half weeks, I think we've heard enough about these dire circumstances in which we find ourselves. The fact that we are sinful, that we're under the wrath of God. So Paul continues by explaining how we can be rescued from this situation. And he says it's by being made right with God. So I'm going to read the passage, some of the passage again. And as I go through, I want you to count how many times... God says about being made right with God. Now, remember, if God repeats something in Scripture, it means that it's important, right? So see how many times he repeats it. I'm going to read from Romans chapter 3. It'll be on the screen again. And you've already heard this, but we're going to, um, we're going to read it again because I want you to just take note of this and how many times. Obviously, the law applies to those to whom it was given, for its purpose is to keep people from having excuses and to bring the entire world into judgment before God. For no one can ever be made right in God's sight by doing what his law commands. For the more we know God's law, the clearer it becomes that we aren't obeying it. But now God has shown us a different way of being right in his sight, not by obeying the law, but by the way promised in the scriptures long ago. We are made right in God's sight when we trust in Jesus Christ to take away our sins. And we all can be saved in the same way no matter who we are or what we have done. For all have sinned, all fall short of God's glorious standard. Yet now God in his gracious kindness declares us not guilty. He has done this through Christ Jesus who has freed us by taking away our sins For God sent Jesus to take the punishment for our sins and to satisfy God's anger against us. We are made right with God when we believe that Jesus shed his blood, sacrificing his life for us. God was being entirely fair and just when he did not punish those who sinned in former times. And he's entirely fair and just in this present time when he declares sinners to be right in his sight because they believe in Jesus. Can we boast then what we have done? Sorry, can we boast then that we have done anything to be accepted by God? 
No, because our acquittal is not based on our good deeds. It's based on our faith. So we are made right with God through faith and not obeying the law. After all, God is not the God of Jews only, is he? Isn't he also the God of the Gentiles? Of course he is. There is only one God and there is only one way of being accepted by him. He makes people right with himself only by faith, whether they are Jews or Gentiles. How many times did you count? Eight? Maybe if you took, there's a few phrases in there. I got eight. Let's quickly go through them. Have a look at the screen. They're highlighted. No one can ever be made right by, made right by doing what the law commands. God has shown us a way to be made right with him. We're made right with God by placing our faith in Jesus Christ. God in his grace freely makes us right in his sight. People are made right with God when they believe. He makes sinners right in his sight when they believe in Jesus. We are made right with God through faith. He makes people right with himself only by faith. I think that's the last one. So God says it eight times. It's important Very important. We are made right with God. And that's why Paul wants us to understand we have been rescued from our condition through Jesus. And if there's anything that I want you to remember from the message today, it's this. God makes us right. But you might be wondering, what does God makes us right really mean? In everyday life, we have academic records that show what we've achieved to validate our qualification. We have vocational records that show what we have done to validate our experience. And here's the problem. Because in day-to-day life, we have records that validate our performance, people from every religion and culture believe it's the same with God. We need to have a moral record that validates our performance, so that we can get connected to God and get to heaven. People think that to connect to the divine, you get out of your, sorry, you get out your moral performance record. Here, this is what I've done. Look at all my good deeds, how I've behaved in certain places. And you offer it to God. And if you're good enough, if your record is deemed to be worthy, you'll be accepted. But God challenges this thinking by interrupting human history and everything changes. Up until this point in Romans, Paul has emphasised wrath and judgement for all since we're all guilty of sin and under condemnation. However, the tone of the letter changes here. And there's two small words that change it. But now. Now I'm just going to revert to being an English teacher for a moment. But is actually a conjunction that is used to introduce a phrase or clause that contrasts with what has already been mentioned. So this has been stated, but. Now we're going to have something contrasting. In fact, it indicates the impossibility of anything other than what has been said according to what's now going to be stated. So Paul uses the conjunction. He's heard all of the Jews' objections, and he's saying, but now. Probably our objections as well. We say things, and he's saying, but now. He's going to contrast what's been said about our state of of being judged and under the wrath of God, and he's going to say, but now. 
This is gone, and now we've got something new. For the first time in history, and may I add also the last time in history, an absolutely unheard of spirituality, an absolutely unheard of approach to God has been revealed. But now God has offered a solution to our sin problem. But now there is a good news that is more powerful than the bad news. But now Jesus can do something that the law could not. But now there is hope for all humanity and that hope is Jesus. A good record of your moral achievements won't cut it. Even a great record with an outstanding list of moral achievements isn't sufficient. What's required is a perfect record, divine righteousness, and it's available to us as a gift. Rather than being under the wrath of God, we need to be made right with God. In our sin, we're doomed to the wrath of God, but now, but now through faith in Jesus Christ, we have access to the righteousness of God. And who has this? Jews only? Church people only? No, Paul says, all, all who believe. Now, I did some deep theological research on this word all. I wanted to look at the translations, and I came up with the fact that translated this word all means all. <laughs> Everyone. No exceptions. All. All who believe. What a miracle of God. In our sin, destined for his wrath, Jesus has come and made a way whereby if we believe, we are made right with God. So the gospel ends our struggle for validation, our struggle for worthiness, our struggle for acceptability. There's no other place that offers anything like this. And it's given freely and it's by which we are accepted. The gospel is the establishment of a new kingdom with Jesus as king. And if we accept what he has done for us, his death on the cross to pay the price for our wrongdoing and make him the king of our lives, then through him we are made right with God. Now this is totally unique. There is no other religion, culture or philosophy that offers this. Instead of trying to justify our existence, God gives us free justification, making me right with him, seeing me justified, just as if I'd never sinned. You have to understand that free justification isn't just forgiveness. It's more than that. And it's distinctly different to moral goodness. Yes, we are forgiven when we come to Christ, which means that we are now free from the penalty or the liability of our punishment. But it's more than this. Justification is a bestowal of a status. You are an heir to the kingdom with all the rights and privileges and benefits of being a part of the kingdom of God. As Marcus Sloan said, to speak of forgiveness is to say, you may go. You've been let off your penalty. But to speak of justification is to say, you may come. You are welcome into all my love and my presence. Forgiveness is, you may go. I'm not punishing you. Justification is, you may come. You are welcomed into my kingdom. This is good news. 
We are all sinners, yes. We all fall short of God's standard. None of us differently to anybody else. Doesn't matter what we've done. We all pick up the bag of sin. We just pick it up by different handles. But he's not requiring that we do anything about that. He has done it all. He's given Jesus as a sacrifice for our sin. All we need to do is to believe in Jesus to make him king of our lives. So then no one can boast about anything they've done to be accepted by God because our acquittal is not based on obeying the law, but it's based on faith. So here it is. We are made right with God through faith. It doesn't matter who we are. It's the same for all of us. All have sinned and all have been made right with God through faith. So Paul concludes in verse 31 by asking the question, Well then, if we emphasise faith, does this mean that we can forget about the law? Of course not. In fact, only when we have faith do we truly fulfil the law. This means that we are not under law, we're under grace. And understanding what this means helps us to understand how Paul concludes chapter 3. Trying to win God's approval through our moral performance and obedience positions us under law. Trying to be good enough is impossible and it's a crushing burden. But when we learn that Christ has fulfilled the law for us and that now we who believe are secure in God's love, then our natural response is to know and be like the one who did this for us. How? By turning to the law. No, I'm not contradicting myself. How does this work? The law of God helps us to know God, to know ourselves, to know our need, and to know the life of peace and being blessed. It helps us to know God because it specifically reveals his character, his attributes, his will, and what he's like. And when we know who God is, we come to know ourselves, that we don't measure up to God's morality and character. When we know who we are, we understand that our heart is inclined towards sin. And we understand we need a saviour. Jesus, to become our saviour, had to fulfil the law. He obeyed it perfectly. That's the only way he could be the sacrifice that paid the penalty of death was due to me and to you. We wouldn't understand anything of this without the law. And so the law, what it does is points us to the saviour. It takes us to the saviour. You know, when God originally gave His commands to Adam and Eve in the garden, He gave those commands to them as blessings, not constraints. They weren't things upon which His love was contingent. He loved them and blessed them in the garden. And their obedience to His commands was the very sphere in which they enjoyed that blessedness. And when we're saved and we're united to Christ, we are able and want to walk in that manner that is worthy of the gospel, worthy of being a member of the kingdom of God. We want to be like Jesus, who delighted in obeying God. And when we do what Jesus did, we get what Jesus got, a life of peace 
and blessedness. We get to die to our sinful nature and come alive, come alive in Christ to live the way that God meant us to live life to the full, a more and better life than you could ever dream possible. And in this life, we're not forced to be obedient. That's under law. We choose under grace to live a life worthy of the Gospel, worthy of being a part of His Kingdom because we've been made right with God by trusting in Jesus. We've been set free. Do you say hallelujah to that? (laughs) Hallelujah. I've been set free. Hallelujah. Let's, Let's stand and declare that truth. Let's declare that we're not under law, we're under grace, we've been set free. And maybe over these past few weeks, you've felt under the weight of that that burden of under the wrath of God, under His judgment that we're sinners. But today we celebrate. We've been made right with God through Jesus. As we sing, maybe today you have never accepted Christ. Maybe you've never been a part of His kingdom. Well, today's the day to lose your guilty status. Today's the day to be declared right in His sight. All you have to do is choose to believe and accept His free justification to be forgiven and welcomed as royalty into the Kingdom of God. Let's declare it together as as believers who thank God for the freedom, as new believers who take a hold of this and say, I believe you, Jesus. I take you at your word.